What a splendid evening it is for us to come together like this. Perhaps as we contemplate the richness of Psalm 27 verse 4, it may set us on task tonight for the lesson we'll consider and perhaps challenge us this week. For there, wasn't it true, the psalmist said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The psalmist did state so beautifully and rather powerfully that the greatest desire that he had was to in fact dwell where the Lord was, to live in such a way that he would always be able to feel His presence and to know the richness of walking in the way He had commanded. Tonight, as we continue our series of studies on the book of Nahum, one of those minor prophets nestled near the close of the Old Testament, uh, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible to that book again as we began a series of lessons last Lord's Day evening on that book of Nahum. Again, it's a rather brief little book, only three chapters, a grand total of less than 50 verses, so it doesn't take long to read it. And yet, as one finds nestled within it, some remarkable truths set before us, of course, by the Holy Spirit Himself. And though these lessons were directed by the ancient prophet to that very people of Nineveh, nonetheless contained within it are important nuggets of truth that can be useful and, in fact, very enriching to our lives even to this day. To rehearse just a few of those central features that we noticed last Lord's Day evening, we noticed as we began this book that in addition to being a minor prophet, it really is a sequel to the book of Jonah. For just as surely as roughly 130 years before, God had commissioned Jonah to preach to that Assyrian capital city of Nineveh, we noticed then that they repented. They, with in fact listening ears, heard what Jonah proclaimed, and they not only repented, but proclaimed it to all, the na uh, to all those that dwelt in that place. We noticed, though, that much time has now passed. We are now over a century later, and they have long since, it seems, forgotten the life that they enjoyed after they had repented. And now, as we began to notice last week, the judgment of God is about to come upon them. They were now far removed from what God had desired and had commanded them to be. And as such, destruction was declared upon them. And the opening words of verse number 1 in chapter 1 was, The burden of Nineveh. Nahum was proclaiming the very nature of the doom of this place. Last week, as we noticed chapter number 1, we noticed that some characteristics of God were set before us. And we looked at ten of them in the course of that lesson, reminding us of everything from the fact that He does take vengeance on those that are His enemies to the character of His goodness. Verses 3 and 7 of that opening chapter. Tonight, as we continue that saga and look more carefully at the second chapter of this book, we shall find again that it's easy to, to divide the book into its three chapters by recalling the little words that we noted last time. Chapter 1 declared the destruction of Nineveh. Chapter 2 will describe the destruction of Nineveh. And chapter 3 will set before us the fact Nineveh deserved the very destruction that they got. With those thoughts in mind, let's then notice something about that description found in the second chapter of this book. As we begin that series of thinking this evening, I thought it wise to perhaps place some notes before us that we had not looked at so carefully last Lord's Day evening. Things about Assyria, things about Nineveh, 
that would be helpful to us as we looked at the description and as we came to appreciate more fully this doom that was declared upon them by the very God of heaven. The Assyrian Empire was in the ancient world a very strong and mighty and rather terrible empire of people. She, of course, had begun in roughly the year 1700 B.C., at least it seems as though that's roughly the time that the Syrian peoples began to gather in strength. It would take many years before they would come to the point of, in fact, beginning to conquer other nations. However, as we began to see, that time did come. As Assyria grew to be mighty, as she grew to be strong, we might well remember that she was positioned not far from that ancient empire of Babylon. And inasmuch as she too was known for her cruelty and her might, these two nations, of course, had many opportunities to engage one another over the course of the periods of time. It's certainly fair to say that as she grew in her ascendancy, there were times when she was exceedingly strong. There were also times that she was noticeably weak. During those times of strength, during those times of weakness, we ultimately appreciate that she did rise to great prominence. Partly the reason she became so was her cruelty. Assyria was known for the way in which she would take captives out of other nations and treat them with complete disregard for the nature of even humanity. They were treated with such reckless inhumanity, often such that even to this day it's known in the annals of history the way in which Assyria treated her prisoners. She is, of course, a frequently mentioned empire on the pages of the Old Testament. I've listed just a few of the kings that grace the Old Testament pages. These were Assyrian kings. First of all, you might well notice with me in 2 Kings 15.29, there is mention of that gentleman named Tiglath-Pileser. He was, in fact, Tiglath-Pileser III and one of the most well-known of the Assyrian kings. It was he in the book of 2 Kings that the nation of Judah and those of that period, in fact, had to deal with. In addition to that king, might we also notice in 2 Kings 17 verse 3 that Assyrian king on the stage of time at that point was Shalmaneser V. We also notice he, of course, was that one who had a very critical role to play in the overwhelming destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel the ten northern tribes that came to exist after the period of the separation of the kingdom. In Isaiah 20 verse 1, there is mention made of a king named Sargon, also an Assyrian monarch. In fact, it might well be noted on that occasion, that passage by itself for a while was a text that caught the attention of many infidels in the world, for there seemed to be no secular records at all in Assyria of a king named Sargon. However, as you and I have frequently noted in our study of biblical archaeology and the references made to it, what do you suppose those infidels came to appreciate when the archaeologist Spade turned that reference to this gentleman named Sargon? The Bible had been right all along, as it will always be. Furthermore, perhaps finally, there's that king in 2 Chronicles 32.1 known as Sennacherib. He too, of course, later came against the very nature of kings like Josiah and others who attempted to be godly. But can we not at least appreciate that Assyria had a very important role to play in the unfolding scenes of the Old Testament? These kings highlight that very thought to us. Near the close of that listing of kings, I made one final comment. 
when that northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity, when the ten northern tribes were overcome and hauled off into Assyrian captivity, the very nation that we're discussing was the nation responsible for conquering and overwhelming that northern kingdom. Perhaps finally you'll notice on that screen, Assyria did at one point have her mind directed toward overtaking Judah. And this is one of the most remarkable texts and scenes of the Old Testament, isn't it? Perhaps we can each recall that the Assyrian army had been appropriately arrayed. They had gathered themselves together and were prepared to engage Judah in warfare. It was on that occasion that the Scriptures tell us a mighty blast from God came and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were slaughtered in one night. Isn't our God a powerful and great God? Isn't he such that he could answer the desires of the, of the king of Judah and answer those in a way to deliver his people? Perhaps we can appreciate today he can deliver us from the woes of sin and sorrow, can't he? And call us to a life of majesty and purity by the following and obedience to the master. Just as surely as those comments are made. That brings me to the very last statement on that screen, which I thought would be wise to make with some exclamation, some feeling in it. As strong and as mighty as this Assyrian nation was, Nahum shouts loudly, Your days are numbered. You have in fact transgressed and violated the very nature of the God who you once knew to serve, and now He has declared your doom. Your days are now numbered. And Nahum, this prophet, was sent to them to proclaim in power and might and directness the destructive character of what was soon to come upon them. With those comments made before us, let's then turn our attention to some closing thoughts in chapter 1 and some of the thoughts to be found in the second chapter of this book. As we make ready for that, we read last Lord's Day evening the entirety of chapter 1. Let's read the entirety at this point of chapter 2. It's only 13 verses. And as we read them, listen to the graphic nature, the vividness with which the destruction of Nineveh is described. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way. Make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red, the valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets, they shall jostle one against another in the broad ways, they shall seem like torches, they shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worthies, they shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Huzzab shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. They shall flee away, stand, stand, shall they cry but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, 
and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelped, and none made them afraid? The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Somewhat breathtaking in a way, isn't it? To hear God make this statement, to hear Him speak through Nahum in such clear clarity with regard to the destruction that was shortly to come upon the city of Nineveh. As we begin to look at some of the features listed upon that screen, some of the notes that might well be made about it, one of the first things that we should well implant in our mind is this. Who was the primary force opposed to Nineveh? Was it Egypt? Was it the Moabites? Was it the Ammonites? Who was it that was the cause of her soon-to-be destruction? Doesn't God make that plain? Verse 13, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. It was God who in fact had decreed and had declared the nature of this doom and destruction, and He it was that would bring about in its fullness, and He it was who would bring it about in its completeness. In fact, notice again some of the things to be affirmed. As we have already noted in this book, the power, the majesty, the might of God, there is no thought withholded from thee, Job 42.2. And are we not reminded that with God all things are possible, to quote Matthew 19.26. As we contemplate thus his declaration of the destruction of Nineveh, God was fully able to bring it to pass. You and I also should perhaps in the distant recesses of our mind, appreciate that any nation then that would array themselves against the character of God, that would array themselves against His truth and His godliness and His righteousness is treading thin ice and is treading in a place that Nineveh found herself. For if God is against you, you will not soon stand in strength. No wonder it was in the Roman letter that we read in Romans 8 verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God is on the side of one, that one is strong. He or she are, is mighty. He or she is in a position of recognizing all the power of heaven at his back. But however, if God is against you, if you are arraying yourself in life against what he stands for, you will not prosper. In fact, was it not said of Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26.5, Uzziah prospered as long as he sought the Lord. As soon as Isaiah turned from seeking the Lord, his kingship soon came to an end. May you and I never forget that to be prosperous, to have in fact that degree of prosperity in life, and the happiness that attaches to it, one must be a devoted servant of the God of heaven. These things about Nineveh challenge us to notice what was to come next. Did you notice some of the advice that was given in the verse 1 of chapter 2? This advice is in some ways almost humorous when we appreciate the might and the strength of the one who had proclaimed her doom. But notice it says, Keep the munition. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. 
do we hear Nahum saying, you better start increasing your armies. You had better start putting more money into the treasury to fund the military. And yet we all appreciate very well that no matter how strong that military was, if God was against them, if he had declared her doom within the pages of the halls of heaven, her doom was going to come to pass. We noted last week in our study that given that Nahum wrote this book around 612 to 615 B.C., we can then ask, when did the destruction of Nineveh come to pass? How many years was it from this time until her doom loudly and clearly descended about her? This is the answer. The Babylonian Empire was at this time rising greatly in its strength, and shortly Nebuchadnezzar and those who were his emissaries would in fact roll over Nineveh. That took place in less than eight years. You see, the destruction was not going to be long in being fulfilled. And when it came, it in fact was as devastating as God had described it. One of the things that I hope to help each of us see through much of the rest of the lesson is to put in place some of what we just read and to see in reality from the records of secular history if that wasn't exactly what came to pass. In fact, consider some of the next set of notes that we might well notice. In verse number 4 of the second chapter, we notice clearly a statement is made about a host of chariots so vast in number that the text says they will rage in the streets and they will jostle one against another. You can imagine in your mind's eye that as these Babylonian chariots came into the way, we can easily appreciate that they were driving through the streets of Nineveh several abreast through her streets. When the strength of that Babylonian army came, Assyria was no match for them. So in fact, little was that match that the battle ended somewhat quickly by the standards of ancient history. And can we not appreciate that? Verse 4 ends by saying, They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. These chariots from the enemy will be swift. They will be speedy. They will overrun this city with haste and with great strength. And as that came to pass, we notice again that Assyria met her doom. Nineveh, in fact, fell rather quickly. She was powerless to stop the approaching armies of the Babylonians. And oddly enough, after they, there were others who arrayed their forces against Assyria. I mention in particular the Medes and the Persians, who later in the book of Daniel, we read about also arraying their strength against nations like this one. And so it is, as we appreciate the nature of that statement here, I would especially draw your attention to verse 6. It's a rather brief verse, but it has some interesting things to say. It simply says, The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. If one didn't know better, one would think that that's describing an essence in which a part of the destruction of Nineveh was going to happen by virtue of a flood. It again says, the gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. From the perspective of history, was it true that in the destruction of Nineveh, there was a rather great amount of difficulty when the waters that had been dammed were released, and in fact they, in part, aided in the destruction of the palace of the king in Nineveh. Historically, that's exactly what happened. God was writing history before it happened. 
That is a part of the way that Nineveh was destroyed. Those enemies, in fact, discovered a means by which the waters could be released. And as they were, they aided in the destruction of the city of Nineveh. Continuing onward in that chapter, we notice an interesting reference in verse 7 to something that may seem unusual. The second word in that verse is huzzab, H-U-Z-Z-A-B, at least in the King James translation. As one inquires as to what that means, was that a place, a person, a mountain, a city? What, what was a huzzab? The context says, and huzzab shall be led away captive seemingly having reference to either an individual, a group of individuals, or a mentality of individuals. In fact, the Hebrew word that is the one in place in the ancient text identifies it easily to be this. That word huzzah merely has reference to individuals who are assured, who are confident. Nineveh in her might and in her power was known for her strength. And as such, she was of the mindset that no one will be able to defeat me. No one will be able by the nature of physical matters to come against and defeat us. And isn't it interesting? God through Nahum said, Huzzah shall be led away captive. Those that are confident, those that rely upon self, those who have placed their trust in the wrong place, they were led away captive. When Babylonia captured the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, they were led away captive just again as God had said they would be. Somewhat reminds us of the days of Obadiah, doesn't it? When there, as that book began, the only one chapter book in the Old Testament, we remember it was a direct oracle against Edom, the very descendants of Esau. And we notice that they too had this feeling of self-reliance. They had built their places, their palaces, their dwelling places in the rock-ribbed fortresses of the mountains of Petra. They thought they were untouchable. They felt that nobody would be able to conquer, to come against them, because they again had their palaces, their dwelling places in the cliff areas, and they thought by the nature that enemy peoples would have to come through the corridors of those valleys, and they would be able to see them. And they'd be able to ambush them and to slaughter them before they ever got to the capital city. However, we notice in the book of Obadiah that there in verse number 3, God again says, I am against thee. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, God said. And in the next verse, he said, I will bring you down. I will bring you down. In fact, God so thoroughly described the overwhelming destruction of the Edomites that He said that when people go into a vineyard to gather the grapes, they at least leave behind something. P perhaps they drop it. Perhaps they overlook it upon the vines. But God said, I will leave behind nothing. Not many years passed until Edom was destroyed. Not many years passed until a conquering mass and a conquering host came against them and they too met their dissolution. Notice, their self-reliance was insufficient to make themselves safe in the eyes of heaven. Doesn't that remind us of that marvelous statement of the inspired apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5? Whereas he described himself and we alike, he said, Our sufficiency is of God. Oh, how strongly we need to ever make our sufficiency and the receptacle of our trust in the God of heaven. In vain is the help of man. To notice the 118th Psalm, 
Is it there not said later in Psalm 146, verse number 3, that the futility is such that vain is the help of man? Of course, we understand that that has respect to things of an eternal nature. The ultimate basis of what leads to life, the trueness thereof, and the basis of truth. Indeed, it's not to be found in the whimsical fancies of humanity, is it? Man is so frail. He, after all, is a sinner. All of us are far removed from the perfection of God, the infinity of His wisdom. And thus, can we not see that Nahum had a strong message indeed for the city of Nineveh? Looking furthermore in that same passage, let's notice what else we might be able to see. In verse number 8, we read this statement. Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Notice the description, these who at once were so strong shall now run and flee. They shall be sent, if you will, to flee in the matter of attempting to be safe. Furthermore, it goes on to say, stand, stand. They shall cry, but none shall look back. When Babylonia came, and when the overwhelming force of that multitude was about them, can you not just imagine the reality of this? Perhaps the nobles of Assyria were crying, Stand and fight! Stand and fight! And yet the armies were in the matter of fleeing. None would even turn to look back. Doesn't it describe the overwhelming nature of the destruction, the completeness of the doom that was to soon come upon them? Furthermore, we notice how that the city in verse 9 was to be entirely spoiled. The language is exceedingly strong. It says, in fact, Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold. There is none end of the store and glory out of the pleasant furniture. Verse 10, she is empty. Verse 10, she is void. Verse 10, she is waste. It's as if there is a threefold description of just how desolate this place known as Nineveh would soon come to be. At this point, might we at least ponder how that that is so different from verse 2. Just as surely as God was here proclaiming the destruction of this city of Nineveh, notice in verse number 2, it had said, For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob. That word is exceedingly interesting, it seems to me. The King James perhaps doesn't do the best in translating that for us. I have helped us each by placing that the following is its meaning. When the text says that the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob, that really means He hath restored the excellency of Jacob. Though perhaps the children of Israel had not always been as near to God as they should have been, and at times they certainly lapsed into idolatry, and they had forsaken the God who loved them, God here through Nahum said, I will restore, though, the excellency of Jacob. I will, in fact, bring back my people who soon will go into Babylonian captivity. I will restore them. Their destruction will not be complete. After 70 years, Jeremiah will tell us, they will return to that city of Jerusalem, rebuild its walls, reinstitute proper worship, and they will carry on the promise of the coming Messiah. For through him, one day, he, in fact, will come. That promise is so beautiful. I will restore the excellency of Jacob. To perhaps appreciate the nature of that, one more set of ideas upon that screen. 
You might notice that just as surely as Assyria had been a critical element in the destruction and the battles against other nations like Egypt and like some of the other nations of that part of the world, we especially notice that God through Nahum said, What you have done to them, I'm not going to do to you. Doesn't it help us see that one should be pretty careful in the way in which he or she reacts toward another for if we had to eat that very same medicine, it might be pretty bitter to the taste. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall return unto thee not many days hence. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1. And can we not recall that very beautiful statement and challenging one of our Savior in Matthew 7 verse 12. Sometimes we recollect and call that as the golden rule. Are we not there reminded that those things that we do, we should do to others what we would wish that they would do to us. Thus, as we behave and conduct ourselves toward others, notice here what Assyria had done to others, God was now about to do to her. In specific nature, notice verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Art thou better than populous? No. That was situated among the rivers, that had the waters around about it, whose round part was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubum were thy helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains." That which Assyria had in part brought so difficultly upon others, she too now was about to feel herself. All of that perhaps challenges us to see that her end was to be a rather pathetic one. Though she had all the opportunities to be great, and for a while she had known the element of greatness, but she had in fact lived far beneath the dignity and privileges that she should have lived with. And I will use that thought together with some of the other things we've stated to lead us to the closing part of our lesson this evening, to consider some of the things that you and I can appreciate from what happened to Nineveh. We have learned, at least in part, that Assyria was to experience tremendous affliction, and she was, of course, to experience great suffering and despair. That also helps us appreciate, doesn't it, in the midst of this, that God encouraged His people still to be faithful. A verse that casts that before us with such tenderness is verse 15 of chapter 1. Turn back with me to verse 15 of Nahum 1 and look in the midst of this destruction of Nineveh what God said to His people. Nahum 1 verse 15, Behold, Upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, O Judah, and Judah's God's people. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. In the midst of the terribleness that was about to afflict Assyria, God through all of that chose this verse, verse 15 of chapter 1, to remind His own people. You keep the feasts. You remain solemnly dedicated to me, and note the promise as the verse closes. The wicked shall no more pass through thee. You will be protected as a citadel by my strength. 
you will be protected as a bulwark by virtue of my presence with you and the power of the promises made available to and through you. That's rather amazing and also comforting, no doubt, to ancient Judah. It is that thought that perhaps challenges us still to this day. Though the world crumbles in ungodliness about us, and though difficulty perhaps even in the church is seen far and wide, we have a charge as faithful members of the body of Christ to keep faithful to the matter of worship. You and I don't keep the same feasts, of course, literally that they did, but in the midst of ungodliness and in the midst of iniquity and in a world so often filled with unrighteousness, we must remain strong and fortified with the truth God has delivered. No substitutions are allowed. For in fact, whether it be the desires of men, the promise of culture, the declarations of those in prestige and authority and power, they hold no water in the matter of heaven. For isn't it still a true statement from what we learn in Jeremiah 2 verse 13? With respect to what has was proclaimed on that occasion and what you and I should still appreciate till this day, God said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people, God said, have forsaken me. And in my place they have put their trust in cisterns, broken cisterns that hold polluted, contaminated, brackish water. That stands in great opposition to the truth of God, doesn't it? For you see, just as Isaiah was told, no matter what goes on about you, you remain faithful and proclaim the truth. You and I must do the same today. We, of course, are not aware of what the future may hold in regard to the strength of the Lord's church. We have already seen instances in which it seems to totter and to waver as things are accepted which are not scriptural, as matters are allowed to be condoned which God doesn't approve. But yet we are aware of the fact that just as surely as Nineveh met her doom because she failed to appreciate the truth of God, so too if we fail to appreciate His truth and allow it to lapse from our life and to give our trust over to that which is not the truth of heaven, our doom will be even more sad than was the doom of Nineveh. For as we stand before that judgment, on that day of judgment, and we have the books opened, and we have our life judged by the contents of this one, we shall appreciate then the sadness and the tragedy of the foolish decision that we made. We must be steadfast. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, we're there and reminded, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As Paul charged that congregation in Corinth, he even reminded himself in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. In fact, if on that occasion when I myself have preached to others, I could still become a castaway. If it was possible for the Apostle Paul to become apostate and to, in fact, drive himself away and aside from the truth, it surely is possible for Randy Bybee to do it. It surely is possible for any of us to feel the burden and the woe of that warning of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Paul understood that well. And the urgency of steadfast dedication and steadfast devotion to the God of heaven. 
Is it any wonder that Paul chastised the Galatians? For they who one time had heard the gospel and who had responded to it in faith. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul had to chastise them. Why have you so quickly left the gospel that you once believed? They were too fickle. They weren't rooted and grounded in that which was the truth. To quote Colossians 2, verses 7 and 8. May you and I have roots that run deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that thought that leads us back to the title of the lesson tonight. The high price of low living. Nineveh found out what high price there was to low living. The living that was aside from the truth of God. The living that wasn't dedicated to His way. They found the doom and the severity of it. You and I will also find the high price of low living if we choose to live in a way that's displeasing to God. How many nations in the Old Testament learned about the high price of low living? Nahum, the message of that book against Nineveh, was only one of them. Judah later, oddly enough, would learn the same lesson. For when she went into Babylonian captivity, God said to her, You have forsaken me. And because you've forsaken me, I will forsake you. And so off into Babylon you shall now go. For seven long decades there she dwelled until she learned her lesson. And then from that captivity, God brought back a remnant and instituted yet within them a fervent desire to again be that faithful people to the God of heaven. May we be wise enough to learn that lesson before the severity of the high price comes upon us. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Can we not learn from the challenge and charge of Nahum what happens to those individuals and even those nations who array themselves against the truth of God? You see, we learn there, God said, I am against thee. What about your life and mine? Could it now be said in heaven of God that I'm against you? If you aren't a faithful member of his family, if you aren't one whose name is written in that great book that is the book of life, then at this point you haven't joined yourself or allowed yourself to become a part of that glorious family. And all the strength of heaven is not with you. In fact, to this point, you're against God, and hence, He will be against you. Oh, how greatly you need to come to Him. A song of encouragement will be sung in just a moment. The gospel plan of salvation has been extended, and it is extended, and God calls you by way of it. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 If we could assist you in your public response to it, Jesus said you need to believe, you must believe in Him or else you can't be saved. John 8.24 Furthermore, you must repent of the sins in your life. They are what have separated you from God. And in the case of that separation, God again is not for you. That repentance, as it is commanded in texts such as Luke 13, 3, brings us to that verbal confession, that lovely and beautiful audible statement in which that eunuch said, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts eight thirty seven. Tonight, we could assist in asking you to make that same confession. And if you thus would be at that stage, you would then be prepared to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. That baptism is not so that you might express some outward show for some inward grace. The Bible nowhere has any such statement as that. As we learned this morning... That is the means by which you would be able to have a good conscience in answer toward God, 1 Peter 3.21. Tonight, if that would be the scene of your life, we'd be honored to be of assistance to you. 
everything is prepared, the waters are ready, the clothing is prepared, brethren are more than excited to think about assisting you. Furthermore, the angels in heaven are excited to ponder rejoicing with you. In Luke 15, verses 7 and 8, that very description is presented. Perhaps you have become a Christian, but you no longer have been faithful. You have, in fact, perhaps begun to make similar errors to what happened to Nineveh. Though once faithful, she became unfaithful. And notice the doom that came upon her. Don't let this state in your life reach into eternal doom. Come back to the loving side of the one who died for you. We could pray with you, for you tonight. All that the Lord requires in that plan of salvation is your acknowledgement by way of repentance of those sins and your confession of them. Our prayer, as we learn in Acts 8 verse 20, will then be an efficacious thing to aid in bringing about your right standing before God. Tonight, if we could be of assistance, don't delay, don't procrastinate, let us be of help, even now while together we stand and while we sing.